There are people who are listening to this right now who have gone to someone's page and know more about that individual than they do themselves, which is absolutely crazy to me. But it is the space that we navigate because we're seeking something in them that we want for ourselves. And then not realizing that you are uniquely one of one. You are literally an NFT. Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I'm your host, Sean Maslick, where we dive into understanding our relationships with money so that we can create happy, healthy, and thriving relationships with it. To all our returning listeners, welcome back. And to the new ones, welcome. I'm glad to have you here. Before we get into this wonderful conversation with Dr. Michael Thomas, if you have enjoyed a show or two, I would love if you could go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. I'd greatly appreciate it. In today's episode, I had the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Michael Thomas. It's his second time on the podcast, episode number 29. Him and I talked about financial empathy. For those of you who don't know Dr. Thomas, he's an accredited financial counselor, lecturer at the University of Georgia, founder of Modem Solutions, a virtual financial coaching services. Dr. Thomas's research focuses on financial empathy, self-compassion, and the connection between brain functions and money. In today's conversation, we explored many different aspects of what it means to be financially whole or finding our whole self. Put another way, we talked about finding our authentic voice so that we can align our financial lives, our financial stories with the authentic version of ourselves. This conversation was centered around Dr. Thomas's upcoming book, Black Financial Culture, Building Wealth from the Inside Out. It was such a joy to talk to Dr. Thomas about his view, his perspective as he approached this book. And you can hear throughout the conversation just how important this idea of self-awareness empathy and finding our whole self is to Dr. Thomas. Throughout the conversation, we talk about what it means to be financially whole and how we can then align our actions with our finances. We talk about the importance of cultivating financial empathy and how it could lead towards more meaningful communication and understandings. We also talk about the impact of internal and external financial systems that all uniquely impact our own financial journeys and how recognizing these systems can help us make more informed decisions. And as I've already mentioned, we spend a lot of time talking about his upcoming book and how it serves more as a love letter that incorporates some financial topics than an actual financial book. And you can tell this book has been written from the heart. I hope you enjoy this fascinating conversation with Dr. Michael Thomas. Dr. Michael Thomas, welcome back to the show. I am pleased you're here for round two. Yeah, man, let's 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 do it. And I'm, I'm glad that the first round went well enough for you to say, "Hey, I'd, I'd be okay with having that box." Yes, of course. I actually have been counting down the months and years to figure out when it would be appropriate to reach out to not look like I was stalking you. So. Apparently, there's been enough time. Well, I'm really excited to dive into, into your new book coming out. And I really want to get into the behind the scenes, so to speak, of this book. But before we get into that, in the world of personal finance, we're both in personal finances. On the surface level, we hear lots of things talking about how to save more or do these three tricks and you can increase your wealth. While they're very important, 
I understand that you have something that is deeply important to you. It's how to spend your money. And before we started Absolutely. talking, we were, we were talking about turmeric coffees or turmeric tea lattes. It sounded just divine, which the realm of personal finance would always see skip that latte so you can become a millionaire. So just, just share with us Mike's view on creating a spending plan and how that fits with you and your life. I love the word spending plan more so than a budget because it's, it's empowering. And the, the whole notion is, is, well, how do I want to or how do I desire to spend my money this month or this week or over the next few days? I'll be honest with you, depending on like different people have different personalities, but I personally don't feel comfortable with money unless I have a spending plan. And so why is that? It's because there have been times where I've had plenty of resources and I thought, oh yeah, I don't want to, I don't have to think about it, right? Spending or utilizing my resources. And I'll go to the store and I'll go here and I'll go there. And then after about three or four days, I've spent all my money on stuff that I had no plans whatsoever to spend money on. And I didn't buy any of the stuff that I wanted to buy. And now I'm in this position where I'm having to wait later. So for me, having a spending plan is a way to kind of stay focused because what we don't realize when it comes to money is that we're navigating a system. This isn't just a, I want to spend and I will spend it. It means as soon as we get off of this podcast, like I'm going to receive some type of solicitation on my phone via text message on social media, whatever. As soon as I drive out of here, there's going to be a billboard or announcement or whatever it may be. So I'm navigating a system where there are people who have spent just as much time considering how they can get money out of it. So if I navigate the system and I haven't been as and as intentional about how I want to spend my resources, well, I'm going to lose this game because there are a lot of people who are doing some using behavioral finance, using information and data visualization and color palettes and fragrances and all these other different things to get you to buy. So for me, a spending plan is just to say, hey, I know where I want to spend. If there is a deal and that deal is in alignment with what I already set out to do, then it's a match made in heaven. There's no issue whatsoever. I got it for a cheaper price. I was going to buy it anyway. So I just like the focus of spending and I don't like being mindless. I like spending mindfully because it means that if I've spent it, I've spent it on something that I value and I perceive that's going to bring me some level of joy. And guess what? If it does not, I can create another spending plan to more align with what will. So I, I love that type of discipline. And quite honestly, what I've learned over the years is that financial discipline leads to financial freedom. Financial freedom without discipline leads you down a path where you're, you're going to have to get disciplined to get out of what you've gotten yourself into. So I just prefer staying on the airing on the discipline side which is why I like spending plans, but I like spending plans to let me know what I can do, what we can do as a family, as opposed to what I can't do. And if there's something that I want to prioritize with it, we create a plan of action and we, we do our best to make it happen. Thank you so much for that answer. There's so many different avenues we can go from there. Yeah, there's a lot. <laughs> this financial empowerment, I've heard you talk about that. You, you mentioned this in your, your answer. Financial freedom equals discipline. Navigating systems, so many different avenues we can go there. I think where I, I want to pull this is something that I really see from or I hear in the words you speak online, just even in that answer, is this recognition of self-awareness of your authentic self below the waterline, if you will. And what I mean by that is hearing you talk about your spending plan, I could hear and feel that there's a sense of self-awareness of what Mike actually wants so that you can not rely on just willpower, but also an alignment in what you value and what you're spending. And it made me think of this quote that I saw from on your website. And I want to read the quote and get your perspective of finding that authentic voice in terms of finding our, whether it's uh, implementing this spending plan or just finding our authentic financial self. But the quote is about the illusion of more. And so the quote goes, we go all in just to feel good about something collecting only moments of fleeting happiness before diving even deeper into the bottomless abyss of more. The only cure to the illusion of more 
is the realization that we are in of ourselves enough. So as we talk about this spending plan, I really feel that this awareness of more is important. So when you hear this quote, what does understanding our authentic self have to do with our own definition of more? The way that I view it is that the lack of understanding our authentic self is what actually leads us down the path of more simply because we are seeking something that is un- that's not unique to who we are as relates to perceptions of joy, happiness, and contentment. So for instance, you know, prior to, you know, having this conversation, we we're talking about turmeric lattes. Turmeric lattes bring me a lot of joy and I put extra turmeric in it. You can't then look externally at me and say, oh, Michael looks really happy with those turmeric lattes. And I could so imagine, you know, the space that we navigate, Sean. I could so imagine somebody coming up with this seminar saying, if you just add extra turmeric in your lattes, <laughs> it has extra health benefits and it's, and it's, it's changed my life. Like I sleep better and I have more endurance when I look. <laughs> we just live in that type of space. But the issue though is, That brings me joy, right? It's not going to bring someone else joy because you may not like touring and that's okay, right? So what happens is, is that if you feel as if you're already operating at a a deficit, right? The deficit's already there. You're seeking externally to fill the void. And if my solution doesn't work, guess what? You're going to go to somebody else's solution. And you and I navigate social media very well. And you know, everybody has a solution. Every commercial has to, commercials will create the deficit and then present the solution, (laughs) right? Like that's the space we navigate. So if people are not aware that we are navigating a system, if we don't know that we're navigating it, then we're going to be in a position where someone's always going to be trying to sell us something to make us feel as if we're full or complete. And that's the name of the game. Right. Unless we actually develop a sense of self-awareness, we actually engage in real work that is healing, that is being not just authentic to self, but being kind to self, being grateful for self, loving self. What happens is, is that once we engage in that process, those things that were enticing, are no longer enticing because we're already whole. I don't need you to complete me, right? Even with within our partners and relationships, sometimes we're looking for our partner to fill a void. Our partner can't fill the void and make us happy sustainably all the way throughout a marriage. That's just not how this works, right? So you have to work on your own wholeness and health and well-being in order to come together as being whole so that you can really start to enjoy and really appreciate what you have. But it starts internally and not externally. And that's where that comes from. And it's a dangerous game to play. Because a lot of people don't know that they're navigating these systems, that they have emotional voids, and they're trying to seek all of these outside things to fix something that can only be done internally. When you embarked on your journey into getting your PhD, In the realm of financial planning, I'm not sure if you saw it as a window into finding our whole being, our our authentic voice. I'm not sure if you are. Maybe you did. But maybe speak to significant points along your journey. Because I could hear people, or I could think people might be listening, like, oh, that sounds like a lot of work going inside. That's that's dark, scary. Finding my inner voice, uh, I'll just distract myself. And, you know. To your point, with these marketers, more, right? With more, these marketers know that I could distract them from going to find our inner voice. So maybe can you share along your journey on your money story, your money journey through words that I hear you often say is healing, self-discovery. When did things start to shift your perspective of this idea to say the um, subtext of your book? We're building wealth is from the inside out as opposed to what we're prescribed to the outside in. Yeah, absolutely. I think a lot of that comes from working with a lot of clients, quite honestly. You and I both know whether you're a financial coach, counselor, therapist, certified financial planner, when you are engaged in these behind-the-door conversations where someone trusts you in a way to where they're 
willing to become incredibly vulnerable and forthright about what they want to achieve, why they want to achieve it, and where that comes from, right? What they want to achieve, why they want to achieve it, and where it comes from. And when you sit on these conversations, sit in on these conversations over and over and over and over again, what you'll find is that some people are purely operating out of joy, out of a sense of hopefulness based on their lens and the experiences that they've had in life up to this point in time. And money can be very joyous. So that's one end of the spectrum. And there's, again, there's a why and a where for that as well. And you have people on the opposite end of the spectrum where things are very fearful. I want to achieve this, but it's out of fear. It's out of me feeling uncertain and navigating constant uncertainty. So even though you have individuals who have resources and money and all these other different things, more than the average American still feel as if they are one circumstantial, one situation away from experiencing something that they experienced in their childhood, which can be incredibly traumatic. When we start to look at any of the research on, on trauma, let's just be honest, what trauma is, is wiring of your brain. And experiences happen, the way that you internalize that experience, the way that you think about it, the emotions that come from it, so on and so forth, the way that you've learned to cope, it's all neurological wiring, which is a very important piece to kind of lean into because behavioral change isn't just, I say these words, right? Behavioral change isn't, I just get up a few times out of the week or I make my bed. Literally, in doing that, what you're doing is that you're rewiring your brain, which is why it takes a lot of energy and effort and commitment. But if we don't realize that our brain's already wired a certain way because of experiences that we had, so on and so forth, we never really get to the root cause of the issue, quite honestly. And for me, I'm just not interested in wealth creation. Everything for me has to be sustainable. Because you can get someone navigating a path. However, if we haven't addressed the barriers that lie along their path to the point that they're not even aware that these barriers exist and it can cause for them to relapse into old patterns and behaviors because that is their coping mechanism, that is the wiring of their brain, then I think that we've set people up for failure. So it's just not the creation of a thing, it's the sustainability of the thing. And so for me, self-awareness is so incredibly important simply because in being self-aware, I understand my strengths and my weaknesses so that I can create systems for myself to lean into my strengths and to mitigate my weaknesses as much as possible. You don't have to be a financial literacy expert to achieve financial wellness and well-being because sometimes you're not going to change your your patterns and your behaviors overnight. So what we need to do is, oh, I know me well enough to know that I have to work around myself while I'm becoming my best self. So what systems can I put in place and in practice because of my level of self-awareness that's going to help me work towards and achieve a goal, even though I don't have the capacity to do it sustainably yet, but I'm working towards it. So that element is so incredibly important because I'm just really big on systems theory and systems thinking, not just an agent but or an individual, but how that agent or individual engages with the world around them. And then also internally, because then we talk about our neural circuitry. We can talk about mental health issues. We can, I mean, we can go down a laundry list of things that are internal systems and external systems and how those interact and that amalgamation of things, so to speak, can influence the way that we engage with money. If I don't understand that stuff, if, I'm, if I don't have an intimate understanding of me, then if something comes up, what do people do when there's a gap? They catastrophize. They say, oh, I'm horrible with money. Oh, this person is horrible with money. There is no context or nuance or even grace Right. And compassion, it's by self-compassion is about t-shirt that navigates this process simply because we haven't done the due diligence to be intimate with ourselves, but we're incredibly intimate with everyone else on social media. Think about it. There are people who are listening to this right now who have gone to someone's page and know more about that individual than they do their, themselves, which is absolutely crazy to me. But it is the space that we navigate because we're seeking something in them that we want for ourselves. 
and then not realizing that you are uniquely one of one. You are literally an NFT. <laughs> you are a non-fungible token. There is not one other person like you on earth. But yet we seek everything else to validate who we are as opposed to leaning into who we are and knowing that in doing that, right, we are this gem. We are this rare, precious, beautiful thing, regardless of our shortcomings and our limitations, because that's what we all have them. I have them. Sean, you have them. Oh boy, do I. <laughs> it's just it's just a real world. So that piece is so important because it's that level of personal intimacy and understanding oneself is where we can then really start to build and bridge and create real strategies that don't just help people start the process, but to do it in a sustainable way so that they can actually begin to see the results of their hard work and their efforts. That just felt good, your answer. Just the way you bring in the, yeah, like how we are part of these systems and there's so many systems around us and at times we could even like be, well, the system allows or does not allow me to do whatever or my internal family system, it does not allow me because for whatever limitation, which is very real. But to your point, I think what I'm really hearing is A, the self-compassion and empathy that you're really known for talking about. I feel it would help us give, give us those psychological tools to really become resilient so that we can withstand some of the setbacks that we may have, but not to your point, be like, oh, I'm not good at it anymore. The all, all or nothing thinking of, it's not possible. Y- your answer makes me think about this Kierkegaard quote that says, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. And as I even think of my own experience, understanding the backwards part of my life, I don't know if it would have been totally possible without your shirt, self-compassion. So I really appreciate this as your shirt says, vibe you're bringing to looking at our past with self-compassion. Yes. And why that's so important, Sean, quite honestly, at the end of the day, you're talking about resilience. And so there, there's a line of research that I'm exploring now with, with, my, with the students who take my class at the University of Georgia is, is it really, is it always grit? Right. Because grit, grit makes it, and I'm not, I, I love the work that's being done around grit. And I think that there's, there's merit and value around it. But grit almost assumes as if you're doing something like you're engaging in, like this is arduous, you're toughing it out type, like mindset, right? Mantra. That's a piece of it. But could it also be that simply being gentle to ourselves as we make mistakes, which mitigates our autonomic nervous system, right? Because it arouses emotion if we start beating ourselves up over something that we've done. And we can go into this loop of thinking negatively about ourselves. What's even more dangerous about that is that we can even become accepting of someone treating us poorly because we believe that we deserve to be treated poorly. And I know that comes off as jarring, but you navigating the spaces that we navigate do and we do the work that we do People can get into these loops and cycles to to feel as if I need to be penalized for my wrongdoings or the error that I made, not realizing that I don't know any person, successful or not, who hasn't made errors, who hasn't made financial mistakes, who hasn't made misjudgments, who hasn't like, we can go on down the list as it relates to these things, but yet people tend to start to internalize that I am the problem, which is what shame is, is like, it's not, I made a mistake. I am the mistake. And so without self-compassion, we can't be kind to ourselves and gentle to ourselves in a way so that we can engage in an objective view of ourselves without judgment, shame, and guilt to be able to say, oh yeah, I did make that mistake. Why did I do that? Right. Mm-hmm. And be able to laugh it off and say, okay, I know this about me may not be the best thing for me to, if I wanted to get a workout or if I wanted to create my budget or my spending plan, maybe doing it at the end of the day, because guess what? Decision fatigue sets in. We actually lose our capacity to stay focused and engage in anything arduous later in the day. And if I'm noticing that about my system and my pattern, then the issue may not actually be the budget or the spending plan. It just may be the time of day that you're engaging in this process because you don't have the capacity. That's not because there's something wrong with you. It means you're human. 
<laughs> and we need to actually create space to be able to engage with the same energy and zest that we give to everyone else, work, spouse, children, peers, family, neighbors, community, church. I mean, I can go on down the line. We're kind and we're gentle in all these other spaces, but we don't create the space to be kind and gentle to ourselves, which can lead down to catastrophic thinking, negative automatic thoughts, and all these other different things that can kind of come about. But we don't treat ourselves like we treat other people oftentimes. And I would argue that, yes, it's important to be compassionate to others. But I think that the real source of compassion comes from someone who is self-compassionate in such a way that it's there, then that, that compassion they have for self then spills over to the compassion that they have for other people. And I think that's a beautiful and elegant way of kind of thinking about it. So it's, it's important. I love that we're having this conversation on a finance podcast because I feel like this is, in a way, the life work of finances or our money is to have that portal into ourselves because we're so intimately connected to money. And I just hear you saying that this self-compassion gives, gives way to acceptance. Acceptance that I am a human for all the flaws and I accept that, you know, I am Sean. And when I, I think what I'm hearing you say is when I operate from that lens, it's okay. I look at social media. I'm not like running to feel like I'm bad with money. I'm wrong. I'm going down that shame thinking pattern. When you said grit, my entire life, I played sports and I was always shorter than most people. And I grew an identity of the hardest worker. And then this grit thing came out and I was like, oh yeah, grit, grit, grit. While, you know, I've never changed that part of my experience of grit and hard work and perseverance. As I realized when I got older and really diving into my money stories, that I was so rigid in that grit that I actually didn't know what empathy actually was. I, I didn't know what tenderness was. I was just head down and go, go, go. I didn't know what emotional agility was. And my wife can attest to all of this. It's been through this journey through money and what money means to us that I've realized that there's definitely surrender. Surrender to the way things are, acceptance to the imperfections we have. Really, I feel it, at least for myself, it tenderizes, or sorry, <laughs> tenders me to realize I'm missing all the hues of how to be relational in terms of like really hearing someone. So your common room grit really, I guess, spoke to me. And it was blinding yeah. me. And I, I distract myself from deep diving into that work because I'd be like, no, 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 you got it right. You got it right. Really, when I, I wasn't. <laughs> and this is a beautiful thing. There, there's space for both. Right. Yes. Right. They're not mutually exclusive. I think that there, there are parts of the whole. I think that there, there are definitely times where you have to suck it up and do the work and grind through it when you don't feel like it. But self-compassion is recognizing that, you know what? I know I don't feel like it. It's a natural thing for me to, to feel like not feeling like it. That's okay. Let's take some deep breaths. Let's just start slowly, okay? And let's see where we go from there, right? And so it's, it's because everybody does it have the same level of capacity just to fight through everything because that can be emotionally and mentally draining. And if you don't enjoy it, then guess what? You're not getting a hit of dopamine, right? And dopamine is our reward chemical or signal that tells us keep doing the thing. So I do think that also with grit, at a certain point, people begin to enjoy the process because they start to see the benefit of their work. So, oh, I do work, I achieve more, right? Mm -hmm. I like this loop. But for some people, they're starting so behind in a journey that it takes them a long time to get to a point to where they really start to see the benefits of their efforts, right? Mm -hmm. And so in those instances, you have to have compassion, you have to have grace, and you have to be able to talk yourself down because it appears as if people are moving faster than you mm -hmm. are, which mm -hmm. creates another emotional deficit. Right? <laughs> and then we're having to build out of something else that we just created yesterday because so-and-so is a part of the fire movement and they just said that they quit their job, right? Yeah. And they're living their best life. What's wrong with me? I should have started sooner. But you have a nice nest egg. You have an amazing home, an amazing family. Like you're... you're Fine, right? So both, 
Both yeah. can exist. And I think that that's incredibly important. I hear this emotional agility you're talking about to be able to go through both sides. And I think that's, to your point, as we've been talking about, comes with that self-awareness. And when we find our authentic self, we can go both sides. I want to start getting to talk about this, this upcoming book, but you've been known for many things, including the empathy guy in our realm, your TED talk from over six years ago now. Financial empathy, understanding the story beneath the numbers has impacted many of us. In our first conversation on my podcast, I think it was episode 29, we talked a lot about financial empathy. As you reflect back to Mike six years ago and your understanding of what empathy or financial empathy was, how, if anything at all, have things changed versus for your current perspective of financial empathy? And did that work of yours set the stage for this upcoming book? So initially, the TED Talk that I was going to do was going to be focused on shame. Those were the initial conversations. And then going back and forth with the team, because we were speaking to a college audience and things of that nature, we were like, well, what, what would really resonate a little bit more than just kind of going in on a shame conversation? Because one of the things that I realized was that when working with clients, we were just dealing with a lot of shame. And I was like, well, I believe that empathy is the financial empathy. And the reason why I say financial empathy, I don't want to be very clear, is that empathy doesn't cover all domains. Very important. We use empathy very broadly, but I may have the capacity to be empathy in one domain, empathetic in one domain of my life, but I may completely lack empathy in another domain of my life. So in terms of saying financial empathy, I wanted to be very, very clear at that time because there was a lot of financial shaming that was going on and all this. So it wasn't just that people were feeling shame, it's that they were actually being shamed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's just be clear that on Reddit, on social media, on some big name people, right? So I was like, well, let's, let's look at it from the empathy side of it as a way to address the solution without diving too deeply into this kind of like the shame element of it. So that's where I'd started the, the, the journey. So for me, I had always understood cognitive empathy and effective empathy. So cognitive empathy is more of perspective seeking. It's like, I want to understand your perspective. Generally, it's associated with individuals who are good salesmen, right? So I'm going to listen. I'm going to know your cues. I'm going to mirror your body language. I'm going to use certain language or whatever it may be. There's that element of Effective empathy is this empathy that's related in emotion, right? In a way to where I can feel and understand someone's emotion, but I'm not necessarily driven and moved in the way that they are, right? Think about Mm -hmm. it. Think about like a surgeon, right? A surgeon should not be as nervous as the person who is going under surgery prior to doing surgery. They need to be able to empathize and understand the feeling Right. But I should not be going into that situation so emotionally moved that I can't perform, perform my task. So this emotional empathy, oftentimes people make it seem as, as if it's like, oh, I have to be emotionally distraught and all these. No, it's just I have to understand the emotion in such a way so that I can work with you compassionately. And then that's compassionate empathy. So compassionate empathy is the understanding of someone's narrative and situation. I now understand how that makes you feel because I felt similar too. And now if there is something that we're exploring or trying to solve together, how can we do this in a compassionate way, given everything that I know? Now, if you want to look at the literature, there are several papers that are out there that don't really consider compassionate empathy, uh, nor do they think that it's a requirement of people to necessarily go that next step. For me, it creates the loop. It finishes the loop. I just don't understand how we can engage in an empathic process and not in with compassion. And I'll end here. What a lot of people don't understand about compassion is that compassion is really rooted in how you can help and serve someone else. So sometimes a compassionate response is, I can't do anything for you. Because sometimes we respond because we feel guilt, because we feel emotionally in so much, or maybe more so than the individual, that the only reason why we're giving or the only reason why we're doing is to absolve the way that we feel, mm-hmm. right? That's not compassion. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
So where that takes us is into the realm of more like sympathy and, and areas like that. I'm not going to take a deep dive there. But compassion is really doing what's in the best interest of that individual. And sometimes being compassionate, especially in the financial services space, is to be able to say that I don't think that I'm the right person to serve you. And that there is someone else out in this space, someone that I know who is better equipped and has the skills and all these other different things that I know that will do a better job in a way that they can tend to your needs. I know that you want to work with me. I don't have the capacity to serve you. Now, that's compassion. And so very important that compassion isn't just this, this feel-good story. Sometimes being compassionate doesn't necessarily feel good, but it's the best thing for the person and their needs. So kind of tying that into the book, which is Black Financial Culture, Building Wealth from the Inside Out, I actually start with financial empathy, and then I end with compassion in the book. So I don't speak to it directly but the undertones, perspective thinking, emotional empathy, and compassion go all the way through. There's, there's a narrative through the entire book that's built upon that arc. And then beyond that, I really touch on a lot of different things that I think that are incredibly important. Forgiveness is another really big thing of the book. Forgiveness of others and forgiveness of self as a wealth creation strategy. Because a lack of forgiveness causes for us to create walls. And when we create walls, what happens is that we can't, we can't establish community in a way that can help launch us or for our skills and ability to launch other people to create this collective sense of winning or, or wealth creation or whatever it may be. So that there, there are elements there. There's me talking about estate planning and investing. There's. A lot of stuff in there that's kind of rooted in um, cognitive behavioral therapy, solution-focused therapy, and person-centered therapeutic methods. Although not, not stated explicitly, those elements are woven into the book, as well as systems theory, bounded rationale. I mean, we can go down a list. It is probably the most non-academic academic book written on personal finance, that if someone were to pick it up, they would not know that everything that I've written or that I've touched on is based on some theoretical perspective. But I wrote it in a way where my mom, who does not like reading, it's only 100 pages. I could have written a novel if I wanted to on this stuff. But I was like, well, if my mom won't pick this up and read it, because it's not approachable, it's too academic, it's too heady in nature, then how am I moving the needle for? That's just me putting out more information. And I didn't want to just put out more information because we already navigate in an abundance of information. I wanted to distill ideas down that were woven into these stories that I'm sharing that are personal stories about me and how I experience Black culture as being an individual navigating Black spaces, both from a very internal perspective, from a historical perspective, and so on and so forth. So I think that I'm fair in terms of how I think about things historically, how I speak directly to some of the issues of the Black community, and so on and so forth. And so really, at the end of the day, in, in writing this book, it really was an opportunity for, for me to say, going back to the self-compassion piece, is that, you know what, Michael, your stories matter. You've done a lot of work in this space. You've been here for a while, even before like financial psychology and all that good stuff was vogue, or empathy was even something that we were really talking about on a higher level. You know what you're talking about. Trust that, lean into it, and, and be vulnerable, and, and be honest, and, and have the conversation. And so that's what I did. I'm really proud of what I've created. I don't talk about credit. <laughs> like who does who doesn't talk about credit in a personal finance? Like that's just sold out the conversation because I really wanted to have a conversation with people that's rooted in a story and a narrative that leans into that you perfection is not required. It's not. And even though historically there are systematic things that we know that have been impediments to wealth creation with, within a Black community. There's this also this sense of optimism about 
Well, yes, those things are very, very true, but there is space that can exist for acknowledging the past and then also being hopeful and optimistic for what can come. So I didn't want to write something from a historical lens of going all the way back to black codes and GI Bill, redlining, just, I mean, like this list can go on and on and really kind of building out, right, the compounding impact of what this looks like over time. Because I think there's a lot of work there. So I didn't want to spend a lot of time in that space. I wanted to acknowledge it because it's real and there are present day implications. But then I also wanted to say, hey, and knowing, and knowing that there are still things that we need to work out on this end, what do we have the capacity to do now? Right. So if we're existing this, if we're navigating this past where like we have 400 plus years of slavery before we even started, what would things look like 400 years from now if we start sowing the seeds, using all of the historical information that we know about how legislation is passed, how bills are written, how money works, understanding the legality of business and entrepreneurial endeavors and investing and all these different things? Right. Like, man. We're so chock full of information that actually I'm super excited about what potentially can become 400 years from now if we start sowing those seeds and actually applying these lessons learned to create something for generations to come that we will never see, will never be cooled by the trees that we plant or even be able to eat the fruit. But I think that we're, we're in a space right now that's incredibly primed for that. And I'm just trying to nudge and encourage households to engage in that process and to consider what could be and what small actionable steps we can take today to create a significant impact for years and years to come. So I tried to do it in a sensitive way. It's a very delicate dance to play. And people will read it from their own vantage point and lens. And that's the beautiful thing about it. It's like, I don't have all the answers. I don't think anybody does but I wanted to be a part of a conversation. That's the beautiful thing about, I think, what I've done here with, with the book. And I want to be very clear on your show that even though it's Black financial culture, the themes are universal. And I actually get to that later in the book, how like you know people in a Black community who would think that, oh, these are Black issues. I'm like, no, these are not just Black issues. So I kind of create this art where we have these conversations and we expanded and started to open up and say, hey, we're not the only ones who are dealing with X, Y, and Z. And it's very important to, to, to understand that. And then you have so many African-Americans and people who are minorities who have established and created well, that there's, there's this spectrum and we can't put anyone into a box. So there are a lot of universal themes in the book that any and everyone can benefit from. I'm speaking from, I'm speaking to it though, from a unique experience that's that's rooted in Black culture. So if I'm using some type of television show, it's something that we would have watched in my house, right? <laughs> like, like Sean, I didn't grow up watching Friends. Let's just, yeah. I can't tell you anything about Friends. I didn't listen to like Led Zeppelin and all these other people, whatever. I've got it to them now, but we listen to the OJs, right? We yeah. listen to Earth, Wind, and Fire. I, I had no idea who these people were. That's kind of like the element there in terms of what Black financial culture is. So I'm using cultural references, right, that resonate with my unique experience growing up and then layering that with a lot of, I think, really, really good money conversations. There are, mo there are moments in a book where it's vulgar because the emotion of the thing is the most important thing. There are parts of the book where it's sad because I... I dive into my sister's passing from an intimate partner violence situation and how the, uh, the root cause of it was financial difficulties. That was the motive. We go into these elements and all these other different things. But again, it's about the beauty of navigating life in the process and having a healthy sense of optimism and hopefulness that things can be better financially and otherwise. I feel like I could talk to you all day. Yeah, we can, um, so man. much, so much <laughs> wisdom in what you're saying. And I think what I'm really hearing is there's, you touch on this underlying universal human condition that you speak about. And while I did not experience what black culture would be growing up, like you said, through the household, I was going to say, uh, on your Instagram, it was a couple days ago. I saw you were playing a song. You're like, 
some boy, your mom, you're like, when my mom was playing this song, I knew something was happening. And while that would have been your mom's song, mine would have been maybe Bruce Springsteen, pay me my money down. But we all have these sort of songs, but I appreciate hearing it from, from your lens. But the underlying thing I continuously hear as you're speaking and when I read your writing is this clarity about, we're going back to this self-awareness, our Mike's authentic self work you're okay with putting out what you're going to put out with this book. You know, some people might see it another way, but I think that's the beauty in finding that whole self that you're really putting forth here. And I got that feeling when I was reading that you said, this isn't a book. This is a love letter it is a love that letter. happened to incorporate topics of finances. And it's actually an art is what you said. Maybe just speak yeah. a little bit more to this love letter component and this book being a piece of art. Yeah. And, and I'll be honest with you, Sean, I actually, actually view this book as art. Like the, the writing process was, was the medium for art, right? Because I am literally taking this canvas of all these ideas that I have about money the more practical side of it, the more esoteric side of it, so on and so forth. And I'm applying all of that in a way to where you don't have to know and have read everything that I've read to benefit from all these ideas that I have. That's the, the, the art part of it. The love letter part of it is that every, every element of this book, and I'm probably going to get a little emotional here because there are so many people that are hurting, right? In so many different areas. And I just remember growing up and we dealt with some really tough situations. And my mom is a trooper. You know, there were times when we, you know, we were staying with people and I had to be very mindful as a child not to make a whole lot of noise or to be disruptive because they could put us out. And there are people who are navigating those things. But there was never anybody who came back to where I was, or at least from the way that I remember from the outside in and said that I love you. I see you. I know your experiences. I've experienced very similar things. I'm not saying that your trajectory is going to be the same as mine, because just because I got to where I am doesn't mean that you're going to be able to achieve the same thing, because there's so much that goes into trajectory and success than just pulling yourself up by the bootstraps. You got to put them on so that we can put the work in, but our relationships, are, there's so many different things that go into that. So every step of the way, I'm, I'm, I'm sharing my vulnerable moments because when people see me now, Sean, they don't see where I'm from. They just see that I have a PhD. They just see that I did this TED talk. They just see, they only see what I have now. They haven't been, and, and so much so to where they'll be dismissive of me or even judge me because they think that I'm some type of way, right? As an academic, as a professor, so on and so They don't see me as human sometimes, which is... It's, it's sad so because I don't like telling my stories about struggle. I don't like telling stories about, you know, being in situations where guns are drawn or mom gets mugged or the neighbor's house gets shot at or, you know, just dealing with drug and alcoholism in my family and seeing family and friends deteriorate from drugs. And, right. It's just like it's like that was real for me. Like this is not some song or some movie where somebody is playing out some character. That's my family. Those are my friends. Those are my neighbors. That was my community, right? So for me, I'm always sensitive to those things because I actually lived that stuff or was very close in proximity to it. I was that kid. If you were driving through my neighborhood and I don't know why you would be driving through my neighborhood at 11 o'clock at night, a 12-year-old walking to the gas station to go get a soda. You would have looked at me and said, why in the world is this kid out at 11 or 1130 at night? Where is he going? Like that very kid that we talk about in so many different, right? Like I was that kid. I was told that I wasn't going to be anything by a principal and that my mom didn't love me, <laughs> right? It, there's so much to this. And I never had anybody that, not going to say that, let me not say that I didn't have anybody. There were a handful of people along the way who sold into me when other people told me what I couldn't be because they can only see me for what I was, not what I could be, right? And so in writing this, my hope is that 
for the people who read this book that they can connect, that we can share the stories, that we can share the laughs, and that they can actually see themselves authentically in something, especially personal finance related, where they can say, all right, this person sees me. I feel seen, right? And being seen, also feeling as if, all right, well, maybe there is some hope. Maybe I can do a little bit, right? Maybe I can sow a little bit and just take it one step at a time and understand, again, perfection is not required. Navigating this process. And so for me, that's the love letter element is that I get your hurt. I see your hurt. I've experienced your hurt in some capacity, but I still believe in you. And I still believe in us as a community, as a nation, that we can get things right and really engage in a process of wealth creation, not just financially, but emotion, emotionally, relationally, spiritually, so on and so forth. That element of it that, again, is that thread all the way throughout. It's these subtle gestures of, I love you, I see you. I love you, I see you. I love you, I see you. And I think that's so incredibly important for maybe a kid even though this book isn't suitable for kids, because there's a lot of, there's, I go to some dark places in the book, but definitely for the parents of those children to understand that, hey, there are a lot of people who are pulling for you, who are rooting for you, who want to serve you. You're not alone, honestly. And I think that that's so incredibly important because there are times where I just felt alone growing up. I didn't feel like that there was somebody coming in and trying to do something to benefit us, <laughs> right? When people came in, they were trying to sell us something. So this is, hey, I see you. I love you. I don't want anything from you except for the best from you. And this is this is kind of, again, like that financial love letter of sorts. Yeah, and that's kind of where that is. I'm really far from you. I'm in Canada. You've just touched my entire being. My heart feels warm. So thank you for that. And I appreciate that, Sean. And my hope is that when you get a chance to read it, that even though you may not necessarily resonate directly with, but the whole point is, is to bring people together because you can easily say that, you know, even though it didn't look that way for me, like you did with the music, <laughs> I know that feeling too, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, that's the goal is to, to take these divergent worlds, so to speak, and to bring them together and say that, hey, we're not so different. We're all navigating some very similar situations. Yes, there are things that we still need to address. Let's lean into where we can go uh, while also acknowledging that there are things that still need to be worked on from the past. And both of those, both of those conversations can exist. And that's, mm -hmm. that's okay. And especially with your loop of implementing or, or discussing from a compassionate lens, when you talk about compassion, empathy, then we could, I feel, really blend those, those two realities. When you talked about being seen, it made me think someone told me in professor I had, but, but, and it seems like this is part of what you're doing in your book, but when someone sees me, they give me permission to be myself. Yes. And I, I just kept thinking of that as you were talking about seeing someone and the power just of uh, having someone felt seen. Yeah. And this is the thing, like, just kind of, kind of like bringing this full circle. We were talking about that level of self-awareness. How can you ever really be self-aware if you can't allow yourself to be seen? It's like Paul Lawrence Dunbar wrote a poem. One of my favorite poems is We Wear the Mask, right? Sometimes we can, we can be so proficient in wearing the mask for the outside world that we don't have the capacity to take it off for ourselves, right? And so being seen doesn't mean that I'm saying that it's okay for you to be stuck in your ways or whatever it may be. It's just having a little bit of compassion, empathy, and grace to say that, all right, I understand why you've utilized said things as coping, me coping mechanisms to address whatever you've had to navigate in life. You, you, I, don't, I don't know anybody who's dealt with any type of addiction that wants to stay addicted to the thing. What most people don't understand about addiction is that addiction becomes neurocircuitry and wiring. We're talking about a coping mechanism that's also tied to a chemical response. That's a very internal system related type things. You don't cure that overnight. And the reason why we have triggers is because it, it triggers us neurologically and chemically to respond in a certain way that oftentimes mitigates our levels of stress and anxiety because that's what we've used to cope. So 
being able to be seen is to be to be able to say, hey, like if I relapse, it's no different than a trans theoretical model change, right? Yeah, if you're pre-contemplative state, meaning that I don't see an issue, then someone presents something where you say, oh, this might be an issue, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Then you start then you start doing your preparation, and then you're saying, okay, I want to take action. This is how I'm going to do it. Then you go into maintenance mode of things or action and maintenance mode. Then after that, typically we relapse and then, but we start again anew afresh. I know more about myself. I have more data. I have more information. I made a mistake. It's okay for that to be seen because now that I know that we can understand our systems and understand the nature of our mistake so that we can then begin the process of actually affecting real change. If people can't even open themselves up to be able to show or demonstrate that they've made a mistake, let alone understanding the systems that ultimately are impacting that, then all we're really doing is right, just putting a, a, a bandage on a, an, on the deep wound that's not actually going to heal it. And, and that's the issue. A lot of people don't feel like they can be seen. If they can't be seen, then that means that there's no grace for their reality or their circumstances as they see it and they perceive it based on financial socialization and other factors that are at play, then we'll never get to the root cause of what an issue is so that we can actually address it. So for me, being seen is one of the the most important elements of it is because it allows for there to be a certain level of vulnerability. And in vulnerability, in a appropriate space and with the appropriate person or persons can actually manifest extraordinary and beautiful growth in the life of someone because they can actually say, this is what I'm struggling with. And until we can actually actually hear people, not dismiss them on their struggles and things of that nature and actually really take a deeper look, okay, there's something here. If enough people are saying it, or even one person, quite honestly, that this is worth being explored. I, don't, I just don't know a better way of affirming and validating someone than to be able to see them in our circumstances and actually hear them. So hopefully, because of many of the relationships that I have, because of many of the spaces that I navigate, that it may be easier for people to see me so that they can actually more effectively see other people who have similar experiences as me. That's a huge element. That's a huge element. Because I think that some people are more willing to hear my story because of our relationship than they would of somebody else's who has a very similar story as me. And I hope that through seeing me, it helps people to see other people get compassion. I'm so glad you didn't write about credit scores. And you wrote about, <laughs> you wrote about the important, info, like the, the, just this topic that we keep going back on being seen and it coming from this authentic self perspective. And you could tell you wrote this from your heart. And yeah. it's a passion project. I wanted it to be this. I could have mm. I could have gone a very different path in terms of like mass media appeal and then something that I know is going to be very headline catching and speaks to everyone uniquely. But I was that kid in Gary, Indiana, middle school, high school, murder capital of the United States of America for several years or in the top three or top five that there were very few people from outside of my system that were coming in and, and intentionally sewing into us or even into me. So I've always told myself, like, if I'm ever in a position where I have a semblance of a voice, even if it's not financially profitable or lucrative, whatever it may be, I do think that there's a, a wealth of something that's here in terms of the spirit of people and the joy and optimism and hope of people. And if that's all that this book does is actually creates and generates sustainable wealth internally, right? From the inside out for households and peoples and and community, that's going to have an impact for generations to come. Sean, I've, I've done exactly what I feel I've been called to do as it relates to this. Everything else from here will just be icing on the cake. Like, this is exactly what I wanted to create as a form of art, as a love letter, talking about money and all these different things, sharing my story, dealing with some difficult narratives and situations. But for me, 
this is so vulnerably, authentically me. It is the most freeing way of thinking about it because I'm not in this work. I'm not seeking the validation of, of people at all. This is just, hey, I know who I am. I know what I bring to this space. And I don't need anybody to validate me in terms of how I know I've been able to successfully work with individuals and actually be ahead of the curve of thinking about psychology, behavioral finance, empathy, neuroscience, and all these other different things. I've been here for almost a decade, not the only one. There are a lot of people in financial therapy and things of that nature who've been here much longer than I've been. But I'm literally almost 12 to 13 years ahead of where we are now as it relates to what we're seeing with CFP. We've been having these conversations. I've been engaging in a space. And what's fascinating, Sean, was that I was even told at one point in time that because my modem financial services or modem solutions that I have, I, I did it as a virtual setup. I literally had people in a profession tell me, who would want to work with someone virtually? <laughs> I was like, y'all, this is already happening. I'm not providing anything new. This is where this is going. You can either get on or you can wait. I'm not. And so those experiences over the years of people telling me what I can't do, what isn't, what's not, what's X, Y, and Z, I was like, I'm, I'm not. I know who I am. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not waiting for validation anymore in terms of trying to drive an impact in a real way. What a freeing statement. I know who I am. I mean, we talk about financial independence or financial freedom, but I know who I am is such a powerful outcome of doing the work to get to know yeah. who you are. And not, not always easy at all, but I, we no, can no, no, hear no. this in your voice. And you said something, if I just make this change to people around this book, but you said just, and I thought just... That's a lot of change, what you're doing to people. And I looked at the testimonies and I just pieced together a few here. And it just, no one said that you helped them increase their credit score, which is not, not picking on credit scoring. You brought it up. So I, but as opposed, listen to what people are saying. This book challenged me. There's a focus on healing emotional and psychological wounds before building wealth. Oh, sorry. There, there's a focus on healing emotional and psychological wounds before building wealth. The author has a unique approach to finance their healing and self-discovery. The author does an excellent job explaining the importance of healing and self-awareness. It helped me understand the connection between emotions and finances. These are, these are incredibly important things that you're, you're helping people see for themselves. So again, I just, I appreciate the work you're doing and thank you so much. I look at the time here and we are over the time. Yeah, <laughs> And I appreciate that. I hope you didn't miss a meeting, but thank you so much, Mike, for joining me today. And please let people know about the work you're doing, online presence, when's the, when the book can be purchased. I know there's pre-orders right now. What's going to happen is that the book is going to be officially released on April 13th. That's my mom's birthday. Because there are a lot of emotional elements that's tethered to my mom's experience with money as well. She was the first person to read it. And I told her, I was like, if, if you were uncomfortable with what I've shared in this book, because it is very vulnerable, I was like, I'll completely scrap it. And her response was to me, she was like, I loved it. And she was like, you told the truth. And I'll be honest with you, there's in, in, in the spaces that we navigate, uh, social media and all these other different things, the fact that that was probably the biggest compliment that I got about it was that it is the truth. It is honest. There isn't fluff. It is exactly what it is. So April 13th would be the release. I am going to try to do a pre-order for individuals who want like autographed copies and things of that nature. So you'd be able to get an autographed copy of the book before the pre-sale. More information, not pre-sale, before the official release on April 13th. More information on that will be on the blackfinancialculture.com website a little bit towards the end of the month. So the last week of, of March. And so there will be an opportunity. I only have a handful of books that I'll do that for. And then after that, everybody would have to wait until the 13th to be able to, to pick it up. And I hope that there will be some, some great conversations that, that spur from it. There isn't one right way 
to do financial wellness and, and well-being. And if nothing else, I want to make it very clear at the end of the day, as relates to Black financial culture, is that it's your money. You can choose to do whatever you want to do with it. Just consider the outcomes of the choices that you make. This book is not paternalistic at all. I am simply having a conversation with the reader, and it is for them to make the best choices that they can moving forward. And that's what real freedom looks like, right? Freedom, you know, there's going to be consequences, whether good, bad, or indifferent of our actions. But at the end of the day, you have the freedom to make your own choices. The book is just going to nudge people to consider things in ways that maybe they haven't considered before that they can use as a, that process of preparation to be able to make change for their lives in the way that they know is potentially going to be optimal for them at this point in time. So I'll leave it there. I am excited to read the book and thank you for the work you're doing. And thank you so yeah, much. I appreciate for, you, man. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. And I'll include all that in the show notes, the links and everything. Thank you for tuning in this week to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you're still listening, perhaps that means you did enjoy that conversation. And if so, I would love if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a review. Thank you so much. And I highly encourage you to grab a copy, a pre-order copy of Dr. Thomas's book, Black Financial Culture, Building Wealth from the Inside Out. Until next week, have yourself a good one. I'm on a mountain without a top My wealth is measured and now I spend my time But now I write a freedom story With every breath inhaled Money is not the boat of life It's just the wind in the sail